and so to be the people who do God's will on earth as though we were in heaven, well, we must love our enemies. We must bless those who persecute us, pray for them, uh, not retaliate with violence. This is God's will as image bearers. Hello, and welcome to the Orange County Church of Christ audio sermon. Today, we'll be starting a seven-week series based off the book, A Crown That Will Last, written by Michael Burns. Michael is an author, educator, and serves in our sister church in Minneapolis, and he will be leading the study today. We hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Greetings to my brothers and sisters in Orange County. This is Michael Burns coming to you from Roseville, Minnesota, which is part of the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul in Minnesota. I want to thank you so much for undertaking a series and going through the Book of Crown that will last. And it's my real honor and privilege to be with you today and kick off this series with a, a title, uh, a lesson entitled Image Bearers. And that's what I want to talk about today. I, I want to kick right off with a scene from Matthew 22. And Jesus is walking in the temple. It starts in verse 15. And it says that the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Now, before we read the rest of the passage, I want to just lay a little bit of the context here. The world of the first century, especially in Israel, is extremely political. It's politically charged. There are passions. Uh, there are factions. There are ideologies everywhere. Enemies, you know, people pitted against one another. It is tense. And in Israel, you have, you know, the people of God who that is their vision of themselves, but they have been overtaken by the pagan nation, by the great war machine empire of Rome. And there's not much that they could do in response. And so some people had accepted that and were working with the Romans. They loved Rome. In fact, a lot of people did. Others uh, could not accept it. They did not see that that was uh, the true fate of the children of God. And so they, they felt that Rome must be fought against. And so there's deep political passions on board and, and all around. And the idea of Jesus being Messiah, which we're very comfortable with in religious terms, is, again, deeply political in the first century. There is no sense that they had that well, we have this illusion these days that we can put religion in one box and maybe politics over here in another box there was not that illusion in the first century. If somebody came claiming to be Messiah, claiming to be from God, to be um, the anointed one, or even if he didn't directly claim it to the Jews, he said it to other people, but that was in the air, that maybe Jesus was the Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah, and the Messiah was the one in their minds that would take out the pagans, that would rid the land of the Romans, and, and cleanse the temple, and do all of those things. And so, it, there's all sorts of, not just religion, but politics and, and all of life wrapped up into this. And so 
the leaders of Jerusalem were very wary about Jesus and any idea that he was the Messiah. And they didn't really accept or believe his message. In verse 16, it says, They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said. So now they're going to butter him up. Notice they, they don't even go to him in person. They send other folks. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I don't think they really believe that, but this is how they're laying the trap. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They're just digging this hole deeper. We know you're a man of integrity. You just say it how it is. You say the truth unvarnished. So we have a question. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? It would be hard to imagine a more politically explosive and divisive question in the first century than this one. Uh, and it's not even in the same realm, but I mean, imagine walking into a diverse crowd today and saying, which lives matter? Or asking something about, should we make America great again or not? You're going to split people. Now, those statements maybe shouldn't, especially they shouldn't be divisive uh, from the standpoint of God's people, but they simply are. And they're going to start arguments in our country. And this question is divisive. Should we pay taxes or not? You see, <clears throat> there's no good way that Jesus can answer this question. If he says, yes. You should pay your taxes. Well, then he's taking sides. He's taking the side of the powerful, <clears throat> of the rich, of the privileged. He's saying that it's okay that Israel has uh, is being occupied by Rome. He's backing the Roman war machine. He's, uh, you know, pushing down the identity of God's people. He's a traitor to his people in their eyes. We're done with you. You have taken sides. So he simply can't say yes. But what if he says no? Well, then he's taken sides again. He's taken sides clearly against Rome, clearly for the nation of Israel, but a particular vision of Israel, a militarized one that still buys into the idea of power and military, but one where the Messiah will use power and military to drive out the pagans. Now he's taken the side of the rebel. And Rome could rightly charge him with treason and hang him on a cross for justifiable charges in their eyes. So he simply can't say no. Well, what is he going to do? He can't say yes. He can't say no. <clears throat> and it says, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. Now, that was probably a little embarrassing uh, for the simple fact that they shouldn't have had a denarius in the temple because 
it had an image of a man on it, which would have made it idolatrous, according to the Old Testament. But they had one in the temple grounds. And so he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. What is it about that answer that amazes them? What is it about that answer that's so mind-blowing? Because he blows up their assumptions, their questions, their divisiveness, their political ploy. He blows it all away. But how? Well, it has to do with the idea of image-bearing. We'll come back to this scene in a little bit. But first, let's travel all the way back to the beginning Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have this beautiful poem of God's creation, picturing for God's people who God is, what he's up to, what he wants for them and from them. And the, the language of Genesis 1 uses imagery from the ancient Near Eastern world that would have been familiar to the original audience. And, and it, it uses imagery in describing God's creation of a temple inauguration. It was common to build these temples and often uh, the ceremonies to open and inaugurate the temples would, would take seven days. And uh, at the end, um, oftentimes in the sixth day even, they would take a statue of the, a god and place it in the temple. And that statue, the Hebrew word there is selem, that statue would then represent the presence and the power and the authority and the will and the rule of that god. They didn't believe the statue was actually the god. It was the reflection of the god. It was his presence in tangible form. And, and it, it was to mediate the rule and authority of the God. And Genesis 1 plays on that language and imagery to describe what God did. See, God had a temple too, but it wasn't a building made by human hands. It was the whole cosmos, the creation spoken into existence by God's word, bringing life and light and order to chaos. That's what the Spirit does. That's what His Word does. That's what God is doing. And in verse 26, it says, Let us make man in our image. And, uh, and so it says, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, and let them rule over, basically, the creation. In verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. That word translated image is the same word that is translated idol. It's selem. God made mankind in his image image, or as his idols. 
So he has made the temple creation. He has put humans into this temple as his representative, his reflection, the mediation of his authority and will and rule in the world. Our job is to mediate or steward creation the way God would. That's what humans were made for. It's not to do what we want or to do what we would prefer or desire or what our gut tells us. It is to rule God's creation, to care for it, to love God's creation the way he would, to go to mimic uh, what he would do, to go into places of chaos and darkness and disorder and bring light and bring life and bring order. We are, in essence, his statues, his reflectors, his representatives. Now, one of the shocking realities of Genesis 1 is, in, again, in the ancient world, the idea of being an image bearer of the gods was not uncommon language. What is shocking and uncommon about Genesis 1 is the idea that all human beings, male and female, are in the image of God. You see, they believed that only kings had the right to bear the image of God. Only kings were the son of God, the image bearers. Only the, the very greatest could know and do the will of God. But Genesis 1 is saying, no, that's the vocation of every single person to do God's will. And the theme, one of the themes that runs throughout uh, both the Old Testament and New Testament is that failure to do that, failure to carry God's will is, is very destructive and it's described by a very specific theme. Now in Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, it says that after sin entered the world, after human beings chose to do their own will rather than God. See, that's that's an assault on being an image bearer. That's not what being an image bearer is. Adam and Eve do their own will. Uh, the serpent uh, talks them into doing their own will rather than God's. And that's a flip of the way things are supposed to be because they're supposed to care for and rule over the creation as God would not let the creation turn them uh, away from their purpose. So in Genesis 5.3, it says, now Adam has a son, not in God's image, but in his own image. And that becomes the way of humanity. Children will now represent and reflect their father's will, their father's character, their father's authority so to speak. And so without this unifying force of God's image and us being image bearers, the world turns into uh, division rather than diversity. God created differences. He wants diversity in his creation, but he wants a unified diversity of image bearers. But because we go after our own will, which is really the simplest definition of sin when you think about it, it's us doing our will rather than God's. We cease to fully be the image bearers we were made to be. We can't bear God's image. And when we do that, we cease, in a sense, to be fully human as God designed us. That's not to ever imply that some people are uh, better than others or, you know, more worthy of uh, righteous treatment or... Uh, more in the image of God in a sense. This is 
This is a thematic understanding of what happens. We rob ourselves of our full humanity, of who we are really supposed to be in God. But that makes none of us any better than any other. But the biblical imagery that I'm talking of throughout the Bible is that of the beast. Because you see, God made animals for the purpose of looking out for their own interests, of following their own instinct, of looking out for themselves, of doing whatever they you know, feel like in the moment, whatever seems uh, best to their self-interest. Now, we can oftentimes think, oh, my dog loves me or something like, no, your, your dog wants food, your dog wants warmth, your dog has an instinct to follow the pack or protect the pack because that's in his own self-interest. Uh, animals don't act in the interests of others. They don't reflect God's will. They don't have the capacity to. And so when we act for our own interest or our own benefit or for ourselves or according to our own desires only, we're acting on the level of what animals were made to do, not what humans were made to do. We are made for a higher purpose to reflect God's will. And so we are often compared to the beast when we act in that self-interest sort of way. You see that in the story of Daniel, um, chapter 4, uh, especially verses 24 to 37. Uh, Daniel, uh, you know, is summoned to uh, interpret a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and he hears the dream, and, you know, there's a big tree and all of, all of this, and um, here's the essence of the dream that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you were given power by God. And what you're supposed to do with that power is act in the interests of others. Take care of them, shelter them, protect them, work for their benefit. But instead, you made it all about you. You've made them to work for you. You've, you you're acting in your own self-interest you better stop it. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take the warning, and he doesn't. And the, the action is very clear by God to an ancient reader. If you want to act like a beast, I will make you a beast. If that's the level you want to live at, then I'll let you be a beast for a while and go the whole way. And then, of course, that, that theme continues all the way to Revelation, where the archetype in rebellion against God is the beast, the, the empire, the nations, uh, Rome in that particular manifestation, but uh, the, the empires that set themselves up uh, against God are the beast. And so we as humanity will be lost in divisions if we're not bearing the image of God if that is not our primary purpose. In Genesis chapter 11, after the flood, we see uh, the rebellion against God continue. God says, I want you to spread out across the, the world, be fruitful, multiply, be image bearers, take care of my whole creation. Without us as representatives, we get the idea from the Bible that the creation will become chaotic. It will become welter and waste. It is our role to bring order and life and reflect God's loving, caring rule. 
But in Genesis chapter 11, humans rebel against that. And in a weird sort of way, the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 shows the power of unity. Because God comes down and says, if they are unified in rebellion against my will and being image bearers, uh, this is worse than anything. So God works against his own plan of unity for humanity uh, in order to ultimately bring us back to image bearing. Unity is important, but it has to be unity in bearing God's image or it will be more destructive than simply division. So God says, I'm going to have to separate them for a while. But that's not his ultimate will or goal or plan. Because in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, I have a plan and I'm going to work through you. I'm going to work through your descendants and I'm going to bless the nations. I will bring them back together. You will be the father of many nations because this is my goal. This is my plan. This is my desire to have image bearers. And that's Jesus is referring all the way back to that, fulfilling that promise that, of course, is repeated throughout the Old Testament, this idea of the gathering of the nations. Isaiah talks about it. The Psalms talk about it. Uh, the minor prophets talk about it. God will one day gather the nations back together. And, and the Jews didn't really fully understand what that looked like or what that meant. But it was a big deal when Jesus stood before his disciples in Matthew 28 and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples, wait for it, of all nations. It's happening. God's promises are being fulfilled. He's going to restore an image-bearing people. The people who are acting in the way that humanity was designed to act, to do God's will. To what Jesus in the book of John said, I came to do, I came to do God's will. I came to be a reflection. In fact, in Matthew 6.10, Jesus says, that's what the kingdom come looks like. That's how it comes. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And then he defines what that means. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is people bearing God's image, doing his will in the present age on earth as though we were in his presence in heaven. How would we obey God if we were directly in his presence? How would we do his will? Well, we'd do it to the highest level of our ability. And he says, that's what the kingdom is. It's us obeying God here as though we were in heaven already. And we look to the age to come and say, there are no, uh, that's a time where uh, we, there will be no war. There will be no hate. We will have no enemies. And so to be the people who do God's will on earth as though we were in heaven, well, we must love our enemies. We must bless those who persecute us, pray for them, uh, not retaliate with violence. This is... God's will as image bearers. It's a challenge to our allegiances. Because you see, it is the empires, the nations, politics that promise us benefit, promise us security, comfort, protection, 
but God's will is risky. It says, I'm calling you to be willing to lay your life down for the benefit of others. And that could be very dangerous work. It could be a role that is not guaranteed, a role that is not promised. But we have a problem, don't we? Because if bearing the image of God is about doing his will perfectly, well, then none of us measure up to that. How could we possibly be restored to the image of God? Well, that's one of the wonders of Jesus and the amazing depth and beauty of the cross. And I'll just show you one example um, of, of each of these uh, really quickly so we can see this. There are others, but I just want to show you one. In Colossians 1.15, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn overall creation. That's the first time since Genesis 1 that any specific person is said to be the image of God. Jesus came and perfectly represented God. He was God's presence. He was the representation of his rule, his character. He is the image of God. And so when, when we stand in baptism, and we die to ourselves and enter into Christ, that is of monumental importance because there is an exchange of lives there. That's one of the things that faith is. When we say we have faith at baptism, we are trusting because we don't necessarily see it with our eyes or feel it with our senses, but we are trusting that when we go in the water, there is an exchange of lives there, that we are entering into the life of Christ and having access to his image. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see it? We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. We engage in this process of being restored to the image of God. <clears throat> in Colossians 3.10, it words it just slightly differently, but same idea. It says we are being renewed in the image of our creator as we uh, put off sin and we start to embrace this life of reflecting God's will of doing his will rather than ours. Now, back to Matthew 22. Jesus is standing there. The Pharisees have tried to trap him. Should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And as I said at the beginning, there's no way that Jesus can answer that without causing division without t taking sides. What is he going to do? And so he says, uh, very simply, give me a coin. And with that coin, he looks at it and he says, whose image is on this coin? And they answer correctly, well, it's Caesar's. And I hope you're starting to see it. 
if that's what Caesar cares about, if that's what Caesar wants representing him, if that's the totality of Caesar's character and his desire for the world is a coin and he wants that back, then give it to him. It's irrelevant in the larger picture. It's not about taking sides. It's about the whole question being invalid. If Caesar wants his little coin, give it to him. If that's the sum total of who he is and his power in the world and his character and what he wants for or from the world, let him have it. But whose image is imprinted on you? It's God's image, isn't it? And the Jews knew that well. From the very beginning, we were made in the image of God. That is our purpose. That is the function for which we are made. That is our destiny. That is God's character. That's what he wants for and from us, is us doing his will, expanding his kingdom, living sacrificially for the benefit of others. Laying down our lives and being allegiant to him alone. See, this is a challenge to our allegiance. In Romans chapter 1, we are called, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, we are called to be living sacrifices. And then it says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Living sacrifice. We lay our lives down and then we start this process of transformation. And the wording in, in Romans 12 in the original language implies that if we do nothing, if we're not intentional, we will be conformed to the patterns of this world. We need to intentionally be transformed. One of the problems that we are having in the church today, if we're honest, is we are starting to see the same fault lines of divisions in the church that we see in the world. And the simple answer is because we have brought in with us, I think mostly unwittingly, not intentionally, but we brought in allegiances other than to Jesus. See, when the early Christians stood at their baptisms, we know this from Romans 10, 9, they declared that Jesus is Lord. That was a direct challenge to Caesar and Rome and the empires and the politicalism, nationalism, and all of the allegiances that were so tempting to them. Because a common phrase in the first century was Caesar is Lord. The idea of repentance um, was not uncommon in the first century. In fact, it was often used to denote uh, allegiance to one king, and if you were uh, called away from allegiance to that king to change sides and be allegiant to another king, if you were in battle, a general might say, repent and join our army or you will die. And so it was it denoted this idea of switching allegiances. Uh, the word gospel in the first century was a term that referred to a declaration about Caesar or about king or ruler. And so the early church is constantly challenging, using the language and saying, your allegiance needs to be to Jesus and him alone. His kingdom is real. You can't have split allegiance. You can't be allegiant to the kingdom 
and to Rome. You can't be allegiant to Jesus' way of sacrificial living for the benefit of others and the political power of Rome. You can't do both. And that's what Paul lays out very clearly as image bearers in Romans 12 and 13. Romans 12, he describes the Christian life. Be devoted to one another. Your love must be sincere. Act in the best interest of one another. Lay down your life. Love your enemies. Uh, don't, you know, leave vengeance to God. That's not your realm. Violence is not your realm. Use good to overcome evil. And then in chapter 13, he says, now be subject to the governing authorities. They're a separate entity. You don't need to try to overthrow them or say they're not valid, but that's not your realm. Because he's already described it. He says, yes, God allows them the, the state and the sword and to punish evil and to keep evil to a certain limitation in the present age, but your job is to love your enemies, is to lay your life down for people. That That's not your weapon. We use weapons that are not of this world. Image bearers are different. And after seven verses of describing how we should interact with the nations, with the empire, he then says, the only debt you have is to love one another. That's our only role as image bearers. This challenges our allegiances. We have to transform. We have to look at every turn and say, am I being an image bearer or am I conforming to the patterns of the world? Do I get so worked up over uh, my nationalism or my, uh, politics or ideology or uh, buy into materialism? Or am I allegiant to Jesus as king? And it looks like in Philippians chapter 2, I won't read it, but I think you know that passage well, and I've alluded to it several times, where Paul talks about putting the interests of one another first. That we do that because that's the shape of Jesus' life. That's what we're called to be. He didn't live for his own advantage. He laid down whatever he had. He sacrificed it for the benefit of others. And in verse 12, Paul brings it all together and he says, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Our salvation is being image bearers. It's being part of God's kingdom, uh, being living with Jesus as king by putting the interests of one another first. That is God's will for our life. That's what it looks like to be an image bearer. That is the tangible manifestation of our salvation. And he says, now work that out. You together as a community, be image bearers for the life and benefit of the world. That's our calling. That's our goal. That's our challenge. And as you continue through this series, I pray that God will open our eyes more and more of what it means to be all things to all people, to live in the interests of others, to take part in the great gathering of the nations that God has given us as his mission and to bear his image throughout the world, to be fruitful and multiply and make disciples of all nations. Thank you so much for joining me and I will continue praying for you as you go through this series. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson and look forward to being with you next week. You can find more information about our church on our website, occhurchofchrist.com. You can also watch live services on our Facebook and YouTube pages, which are located on our website. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.